So let's do this. Would you put your hands together and welcome Pastor Larry Osborne. It's uh, not at all what he expected. I mean, he was trying to follow the Lord and do what he could, and yet everything had fallen apart. And God had warned the people that this was going to happen, but they hadn't taken it seriously. Kind of like, you know, the little kid in your household when you warn them, hey, you do this one more time, and then suddenly one more time happens, and you do it, and they're like, what's with that? It's kind of how they were. You see, God had given them a promised land, and he told them they, he was going to bless them incredibly, that they were his chosen people. But he also said, listen, if you stop listening to me, if you start following after the, the morals and the values of the other nations, if you begin to bow down to their gods, then I'm going to give you their gods, their kings, and their leaders. And they're going to come, and they're going to conquer you, and they're going to take over. You're going to have kind of the ultimate timeout, if you will. And there's going to come a time and a place where I'm going to give the land uh, back to you, but it's only after you learn the lesson of this incredibly harsh discipline. And this godly young man, probably around 16 years old, that was uh, in the midst of it, hadn't done anything wrong, but there he found himself in chains, being carried off to a foreign land because he had been caught in the backwash of someone else's sin which in this fallen world is a thing that happens to good people. We don't always get good results in the short run because sin is allowed to happen. So he's being carted off uh, along with some of the other young nobles from the land and kind of the cream of the crop as far as guys, along with the cream of the crop as far as gals to be put into the uh, foreign king's uh, harem. And, uh, and, and this young man is gonna have not only his whole life turned upside down, I mean, he's kind of born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's got everything going for him. He's going to be castrated on his way there, which was part of what was done in that culture to conquered young nobles who were going to be serving in a foreign king's administration. And he's taken off. And as he's, he's brought there, he figures out how to follow God in ways that allow him to have incredible success. He and the people there are going to be there over 70 years before they're allowed back in the land. But during that time, this young man figures out how not just to survive, but how to thrive in the most godless of environments. And at the end of his life, he writes an autobiography. In our Bibles, it's one of the 66 books there, and it's called the book of Daniel. And I want to encourage you to pull it up on uh, your digital advice or a, a paper Bible. Today, we're not actually going to be putting the verses up on a screen, so you'll need to follow along elsewhere. And we're going to look at this first chapter, but we're going to see Daniel if, in a different light if you've had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, like I did. You see, because growing up in a Christian home, I heard all the stories about Daniel. And Daniel was this great adventure story. I mean, kind of the ultimate curriculum for Sunday school. That's why you heard the story over and over and over till you could just about take over the flannel graph and do it yourself. <laughs> and the problem is that everything I learned about Daniel was partially true, but my conclusions were pretty much completely wrong. 
You see, God didn't put the book of Daniel in your Bible and my Bibles so we could have an adventure story. He didn't put it in there so that at the backside where there's a little section on prophecy, we could speculate and see who gets it right. And he didn't teach the lesson in this book that I always thought he taught. Help me out, those of you who had the, help, right now, how many of you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home where you went to Sunday school and heard the stories of this guy named Daniel? Okay, a good number of you. I wonder how many of you came out of that with the same uh, idea that I did, which was if I would honor God, if I would be courageous, if I would do the right thing, I would be delivered. How many picked up that idea? Okay. Well, <laughs> if the lesson of Daniel is doing the right thing means you will be delivered from hungry lions who when you're thrown in the pit suddenly go on a high-carb diet, or, or you're going to be delivered uh, when you refuse to bow down before idols like his three friends did, and you're thrown in the fiery furnace, there'll be a fourth one walking around with you, and you'll come out. Because if that's the lesson of Daniel, God has some major explaining to do. Serious explaining. He's backed into a corner. Because how many other people have been thrown in the lion's den when they go on a diet? Zero. In all history, how many people have been burned to the stake or thrown into a fiery furnace and they come out alive? The three in this book. So clearly, the message of Daniel was not meant to be a Sunday school curriculum to tell our kids to be more courageous and God will deliver you. In fact, they didn't even have Sunday schools when it was written. They didn't even have Gutenberg hadn't come along. They didn't have little Bibles by their nightstand to study. It was given as an adult primer, a lesson for us of, as adults of how we are to respond when we find ourselves in the backwash of other people's sin, when we find ourselves in an environment that is not as godly as we were used to, or even as godless as this place called Babylon was. Because that's where he was taken, by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon is worse than anything you and I can ever imagine. Because, you see, if I could suddenly be transported or you with me transported to heaven, we were listening in. You know, we always got these little uh, code phrases and words that that's, uh, are uh, a picture of something else. Well, for Daniel, uh, I mean, for the angels, the word Babylon is a personification of all evil. They just say, it's Babylon-like, and everybody knows that's as bad as it can get. How do I know that? Because in Revelation chapter 18, when it's revealed that Jesus is going to uh, return now, and they finally get the time, they start high-fiving one another, we're told in the Bible, and they cry out this phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Not Nazi Germany, not anything, you Sodom and Gomorrah, not anything you and I could think of. It's Babylon is the worst of the worst. So that makes the lessons that we're looking at today all the more powerful because Daniel, as I said, didn't just survive, he thrived. And in the 70 plus years that he was there, he actually led three national revivals to the point where the leadership of that godless, damnable nation cried out to praise God. So here's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna walk through just the first chapter and we're gonna see the four secrets of his success. And what I want to do is I want to leave you with an assignment today, and that is that you would read through the book of Daniel a few times this week, putting on the lens of the four things we talk about that were his secrets, and you'll see them over and over and over in the story in ways you've probably never seen them before. 
But it's not just to give us more knowledge. You know, the Bible's not meant to be a set of binoculars that you and I can go, oh, thank you, and look at everybody else and see who's not measuring up. It's meant to be a mirror so we can look at ourselves and say, God, where am I? You know, where do I need to make that adjustment, you know? Uh, get this little wrinkle off at my age, get those eyebrows all back up. And, you know, that's what it's for. And so my hope is that today you will go home with a sense of what God is calling us to in the culture we're living in. Because I think most of you would agree it's not getting more and more godly day by day. So how do we think? What do we do? Well, we find it here in Daniel's story. And that's why God said, print it. So beginning with Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, here's what we have. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, the king of this damnable, godless place called Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And then in verse 2, we have this incredible phrase highlighted in your Bible. It's so important. And the Lord delivered. Say it with me again. Who? And the Lord, Lord did what? Delivered. delivered. What did he deliver? Oh, my goodness. He delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, and these he carried off the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Like, what? <laughs> Daniel, in his old age, like anybody writing any kind of book, sets the stage in that opening part of the book. He doesn't tell us anything about his birth, his young age, anything. He says, to understand the whole rest of my story, how I thought, why I did what I did and everything. You need to understand this. As a young man around 16 years old, roped or chained together with a bunch of other people who were losing everything they thought they had, here's what I knew. I knew it was the Lord who delivered. And suddenly everything else opens up. It is the key to this book, and, and to my uh, sadness and shame as a young pastor, I taught through the book of Daniel, and I always race through these first two verses, because I want to get to the exciting stuff. And it was like I was building a house without a foundation. We're going to spend most of our time of the four traits on this particular one, because it is the one that explains everything it did. Because he understood it was the Lord who allowed this to happen, and that God was in control of who was in control, such an important phrase for us to understand. Because he got that, he was able to think and do what we're going to see in the coming pages. And none of us are able to do that when we forget that God's in control. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but you probably know somebody who has. Uh, and, you know, the, life is not going the way they want, and we know exactly what God wants us to do, but we begin to think it's not working in this situation. And so we take things into our own hands, and we do it our way, which works out really well, doesn't it? And so Daniel was able to do, we're going to see very counterintuitive things, not the way the body of Christ is responding, and many of us are responding as individuals today because of what he knows, that it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and the items from the temple. And I want you to feel and sense this, because it was not just Lord said, okay, this demon-worshiping king and this evil nation can have success for a period of time over you, but he even allowed Nebuchadnezzar's troops to break into the temple 
and take things devoted to God from the temple. And it says he took them back to Babylon and he put them in the temple of his demon god Baal as a way of mocking the God most high. That's mind-blowing. If you heard in the Old Testament the story when the nation of Israel moved into uh, uh, the promised land, their first battle was a place called Jericho. And, and from that, there's a biblical principle called the first fruits. The first always belongs to God in all aspects of our life. And, and so he said, the spoils from your, your victories, everything in this town, it is supposed to go into the temple treasury. And they did exactly what they were told except for some bozo named Achan. And this guy decided a couple of things that belong to God will not be missed. And because of that, the next battle the nation of Israel went on, tiny little podunk town called uh, Linden Ai or something like that. No. <laughs> they thought, that we don't need to, need to send all of our troops. And they were defeated. They were routed because of that until that sin was taken care of. And now you fast forward many, many years, and God says, yeah, take it. Go ahead and mock me. And Daniel knew that. If you're a note taker, you might jot down this phrase that I, I said, and it is simply this, even in Babylon, God's in control of who's in control. And another phrase, panic and despair are never from God. Now, I chose those words carefully. Panic and despair are never from God. Because discouragement can be okay. I mean, Jesus prayed three times to the Heavenly Father before he went to the cross. Is there a plan B? And he was so distressed about what was going on, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. The Apostle Paul talks about despairing of life and being very discouraged. So I'm not talking about disappointment, discouragement. There's a time to weep and a time to rejoice. But I'm talking about that just overwhelming sense of despair like, God, where are you that just causes us to take things in our own hands? It's never from God. And Daniel did what he did because he knew that. Now, as a pastor, I get asked the same question every pastor does, especially whenever there's anything tumultuous in our culture or our world. And that is, can we do a study on the book of Revelation? <laughs> Have you guys been asked that one, Right. And, and at least at North Coast, where I have the privilege of being one of the teaching pastors, when everybody says, hey, can we do a series on Revelation? They don't really want us to do a series on Revelation. You know, if we did that, they'd bail out in three weeks, four weeks, right? It's like, dude, what is this, okay? Here's what they want. They want to know who the Antichrist is and exactly when Jesus is returning. And the bummer is I resigned from the programming committee and I'm on the welcoming committee now. So I don't have any good answers. But I did peek at the end one time. I don't know if you have. Did you know we win? Are you aware of that? We win. So once I'm guaranteed we win, why do I care what the score is in the third quarter? If you're a sports fan, your favorite games are ones that were hopefully lost, and then you have a, a, a miracle ending. Now, as it's hopefully lost, you're not in the best mood, Right? But afterward, you're playing it over and over. I, I, I grew up, you can blame my dad, please give me grace, but I grew up a USC football fan. And, and, and so if, if, 
you're a USC football fan. The biggest game of the year is not Notre, uh, UCLA. It's Notre Dame. Two-storied programs, lots of national championships, different things. And, and, and long ago, far away in another galaxy, they were good. And, uh, and they looked like they were on their way to the third straight national championship. And they're playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame. And they're a much better team, and they're very fast. So Notre Dame uh, grew the grass. Literally, if you ever see films of it, the grass was so high that you couldn't see the shoes of the runners, which kind of compromises speed in a football game, right? And, and so what happened? I'm watching the game alone with a new big screen TV, and uh, SC is squandering opportunity after opportunity. And if you know anything about sports, there comes a point where you've squandered opportunities, even if you were the superior team or player or whatever it is, bad things are going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And with about two minutes left, Notre Dame marches down the field to score the go-ahead touchdown. And then SC's going to get it back. And I know God's an SC fan, so there's no problem. There's going to be a miracle finish here, but that's not what happens. Uh, the kickoff goes through uh, the end zone. They get the ball at the 20-yard line. A Notre Dame guy breaks through and throws the USC quarterback for a 13-yard loss. And now it's fourth and a gazillion yards. And the fans are going nuts. The announcers are talking about the, you know, the winning streak is over. And the players are just jumping. The stupid leprechauns going across the field. <laughs> and I'm ready to throw something at that TV. And I realize, oh, it's new and expensive, big screen. I'm supposed to, back then it was uh, before video venues came along, and so we used to have to have two Saturday night services along with all our others. And I've got to preach that day, and I've totally lost my sanctification. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> come on, you've been there. Don't look at me that way. Right? And then there's a miraculous long pass on the last play of the game, a bush push, and order is restored in the universe. Now, I have a tape of that game. I will watch the video of that game weekly. No, no, uh, not really. I've watched it occasionally. And here's what happens. Every time I come to that play that is the end of the season, it appears, the 13-yard loss, and everybody's chest bumping, high-fiving, a stupid leprechaun, things. Guess what I do? I pause it. I go backwards. And I play it again in slow motion to savor every second of it. I love those chest-bumping linemen. <laughs> the high five. I even like the leprechaun. Now, here's the weird thing. I'm watching the same exact thing. The same exact thing. And instead of losing my sanctification, wanting throwing, throwing something through the TV, I'm deciding to play it again over and over again in slow motion. And there's only one thing that has changed. What has changed? I know the ending. Here's my question for you. Would your coworkers think that you know the ending? After you read the news or watch something, would the people that are in your life group or growth group, whatever you call your small groups here, would they know as you listen to prayer requests and conversations that you all know the ending? You see, we say, ah, oh, teach the book of Revelation. Well, the main thing in the book of Revelation, you already know. And the question is, are we living by it? And one of the things that breaks my heart all across the country and in my own church 
is how many of us proclaim the victory of Jesus. We sing the songs that coming out of the grave and all of that. And then when push comes to shove, we don't really believe. And we panic when the score is not what we want in the third quarter. As I said, I would spend the most time on this because what we're going to see now in the next few minutes of Daniel's response is only possible. It's only possible when I know how it ends. Because when I know how it ends, I do what he says. When I'm not sure how it ends, I do what I think is best. Now, I, I'm a geographical moron. Are any of you geographical morons? You're like, you know, my wife is always, when I travel and speak somewhere, she's always wondering how I got back home. <laughs> I open the and I'm like, what are you doing here? You know, she's also mildly disappointed, but that's another issue. <laughs> and what I've learned as a guy who just always has direction wrong, if I listen to the little lady in my phone I will always get where I want, even when I'm convinced she has no idea where we are or where we're going. And it's such a picture of what Scripture needs to be for us. But it's only my experience after experience after experience when she goes to go right, and I know I need to go left, and I do what she says, that I come to the point, I go, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And sadly, too many of us today don't really believe God knows what he's talking about. And we don't really believe we're going to win. So let's move through this passage at the speed of an arthritic snail. Okay. We're going to pick up now in, in verse 3. And as I said, most of the time, because it's a foundation, just like any of you are builders, you know, you spend more time on entitlement, digging the foundation, than building the house. But now we're ready to build it. So the second thing that was a key is not only his optimism, Okay, he was a man of, of, of optimism. He knew what God was going to do. He was also a man of incredible wisdom. <coughs> incredible wisdom, and, and it's a special kind of wisdom. He knew the difference between what he didn't like and what God forbids. And I think many of us don't know that difference. We think that anything we don't like, anything we're uncomfortable with, anything that doesn't hit our uh, match up with our convictions, God must be on our side. And there are clearly lines that God draws in Scripture. We, as we're going to see in the next one, we need to follow. But so many of our battles with one another, battles with the culture, are about things where God really hasn't said anything. And when we pick the wrong battles, we won't have the energy and the ammunition for the right battles. So let's read about his wisdom. So he is uh, taken to Babylon, and then the king orders Asenaz, the chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. And I love the humble way that Daniel describes himself and his friends. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's administration, if I say so myself. And when he got there, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. You know what that is? It's astrology and the occult. So he's taken away from God to a demon-worshiping king who has stuff in his demon god's temple to uh, show that his demon god is better than the true god. He's taken here. He's castrated on his way. And then he's forced to study astrology and the occult for three years. Spoiler alert, we're going to see in a few moments. 
he graduates number one in his class. I look around, what would I do in the flesh, man? I would sit in the back row, I'd mock, I'd find some way to get out, I'd do whatever it would be. Now, Daniel did not cross the line to practice astrology and cult. They were forbidden. But he basically sat in the front row and took copious notes. And we're told later on, he he actually not not only was number one in his class, he was ten times better, he and his buddies, than all the previous ones had gone through the courses. And because of that, he had the credibility later on to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and say, this is all bunk. Let me tell you about the God Most High. Couldn't have happened if he'd picked the battle. I don't want this. Okay. Now, we read on. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So not only is he studying this stuff for three years, then he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's administration. And what's ironic to me is we live in a world, whether you're on the left side or the right side of the political spectrum, you cannot imagine anybody who has a, a brain or morality serving in the administration of the other side. And yet that's what Daniel went through, graduated number one, and that's what it was all about, to be put in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. Now we read on in verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, and the chief official gave them brand new names. To Daniel, which by the way, the name Daniel comes from, uh, maybe you've heard the phrase El Shaddai, one of the many names of God, El is, is, is God. And, and uh, his name Daniel means God is my judge. Here's a new name he gets, Belshazzar. You know what that means? Baal, the demon god? It means Baal's prince. It's like you're a Jesus follower. Your name is Christian, and they just named you Satan's prince. And the weirdest thing is he graduates number one in his class. He goes in the administration, serves Nebuchadnezzar so well, he keeps getting promoted. And when they change his name to Baal's prince, he says, call me what you want, just not late to dinner, please. And I am blown away. Would you agree with me that it would not be our normal response? And if most of us had that response today, all of our uh, Christian friends would go, they'd call us a compromiser. And part of the reason we've lost sometimes to have the ability to impact our community is this confusion that causes us to assume what God, uh, what I don't like, God doesn't like. And it doesn't mean we don't have convictions. It doesn't mean all kinds of things. It means in the midst of all of that, we're to step back and say, God, what are your marching orders? Not the marching orders of my favorite podcaster, my pastor, my friend over here, my things I read. What are your marching orders in Scripture? And would you agree with me? There's some strange ones. Like, love your enemies. I know I'm in church, so we nod. Like, come on. How stupid is that? (laughs) But it works. And he said, print Daniel so we would learn all this counterintuitive stuff that will make a difference. The long list of things he overlooked blows me away. The pagan curriculum, the name change, serving a godless king, keeping getting promoted. If you take my assignment to read through Daniel, the next week you'll see it over and over and over. But there's a third thing he had, which is courage. Courage. 
Because it's submission to those in authority, like we're told in the New Testament, Romans uh, uh, chapter 13, First uh, Peter 2, uh, that, that sense of honoring those, what Daniel, the Lord's the one who makes those decisions. It doesn't mean we have a blind submission. Well, whatever you say, even when it's wrong. Are, are you catching the distinction I'm making between that which I don't like and is uncomfortable and that which is flat out evil? Because I can always have excuses over here to kind of get some Bible verse out of context, explain it and whatever. But no, there are clear lines that are drawn in Scripture. The Hebrew midwives were told to murder every boy at birth by Pharaoh. And they just, they lied. They, Pharaoh goes, how come all these boys are still living? And they said, man, they just pop them out before we get there. <laughs> and then it says, and the Lord bless them with children of their own. So there are lines. And, and so even though Daniel probably knew very little about the uh, uh, scriptures, the 613 laws in the Old Testament, because remember, the nation is in such dark time, God's going to send them away to be conquered by an evil nation for 70 years. As I said earlier, Gutenberg hasn't come along, so he's not like studying his Bible on his own every day. But there were, even in the darkest times where the priests were not teaching and, and things were not being done, they all knew a few things. They knew that little boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. They were not supposed to bow down before an idol, and they were supposed to keep a kosher diet. And so the king is serving them a diet that's not kosher, heavy in pork from uh, those who have studied these things. And so we're going to see how Daniel drew the line. And as we do this, notice his attitude. We pick it up in verse 8. Remember, he was going to serve him from the king's table after his name was changed. So now we're in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. He didn't chew out the chief official. He'd say, who do you think you are? You know, I'm a Jew. I didn't cop an attitude at all. He just asked the head, dude, head, head, head guy for permission. Well, <laughs> he, he, it says in verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. He liked Daniel, which we'll see over and over is because how he treated people, even his enemies and God's enemies. But the official told Daniel, hey, listen, I'm afraid of Lord my king. He's assigned you this food and drink. Why should you, he see you looking worse than other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. This is a bloodthirsty place. If you don't eat this kosher diet like you want, then, and you don't look good, like, it's not just you who goes down, dude, it's me. So I'm sorry I can't do that. Now, Daniel picks it up in verse 11. So he says to the guard, not the big dog, but the guard who was over them. And he says this in verse 12. I insist upon... I'm oh, sorry, wrong Bible. <laughs> Talk to my Lord. Nope, that's not in there either. Please test your servants for 10 days. Gracious request for a total win-win. Just 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare us to the parents with our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And then, notice, his courage accepts whatever the consequences are. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. We'll be good with it. We won't whine. We won't gripe. We will accept it. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished. In the Hebrew, fatter, because the skinny people weren't the rich people with a health thing back then. You ever seen those old paintings of people? They all like a bit chunky, right? Because 
the people we want to look like today were the poor people. Okay, so that's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. <laughs> so actually, they, they didn't lose 10 pounds. They gained 10 pounds when they went on this diet. And uh, then it says, uh, um, so it, it was give, taken away. They were given vegetables. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, astrology and the cult. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Amazing. He and his buddies drew their line. And the reason God was able to use and bless them, again, it's not always we're going to be delivered. We want to be used and blessed, okay? And the reason God could do that was because they weren't standing up with courage and taking on things that God had not told them to take on. You see, when God has drawn the line and you and I step forward courageously, the reason God's going to show up, whether we burn up or we're delivered uh, physically, the reason God's going to show up is because his grace, his mercy, and his strength always shows up when we follow his assignment. But it never shows up when we go out with courage and strength on that which he did not assign us to do. There's a story of the nation of Israel after they were told, they, sorry, you don't get to go into the promised land because you all called, said, I brought you out here to die. You might know that story. So it says, turn around. After one year, they were supposed to go in. You get to march around for 39 years till you all be dead. And then your kids get to go in. And they all repented and said, no, we'll go in. And they tried to go in and they got routed. You see, God never gives us courage to do what we think is obedience if it isn't obedience. And Daniel understood where God had drawn the line, and God showed up. And again, I want us to note his acceptance of whatever the consequences were. We live in a day and age where everybody wants to be courageous, but no one's willing to accept the consequences. I see it on the left and the right in the political arena. I see it in church circles as well. And it's, it's true of both sides. Everybody wants to protest or do whatever they do. And whenever the consequences come, they're going, what's with this? It's like, that's what courage is. Courage is accepting the consequences quietly and healthily like Daniel and his three friends you're going to see dead. It's not like whining. Like, well, I, it was fake courage. Courage without a willingness to accept the consequences is nothing but junior high bravado. Courage stands firm and says, like Daniel did, we'll take whatever, but we're not crossing that line. Now, the fourth thing that we see from him is incredible respect. And I've, I've pointed it out kind of as we've gone all through this. He not only had that optimism, and he had the wisdom to pick his battles. And when he knew, this is not me, this is a God line, he accepted whatever those consequences were and wouldn't cross it. But all the way along to everybody you'll ever read about in Daniel, he's respectful. Amazingly so. See, in my flesh... I think if you're doing the work of the enemy and I treat you with respect, I think I'm aiding and abetting the enemy. But that's, God is like, nope, I got a different plan. And, and I understand why, because our job is not to wipe out God's enemies, it's to win them over, amen? We often think it's to, at least if somebody listening on the side would think we want to wipe out God's enemies. No, we want to win them over. That's what he died on the cross for and he sent us out to be his ambassadors for in the Great Commission. Well, here's the thing. No one will ever win anybody over if, you think they, you, if they think you don't like them. 
Have any of you ever been influenced by somebody looked down on you, talked badly about you, and you did not, and you knew they didn't like you? Not one of us. Only two of us have, I guess. Whatever. I must have worded it wrong. No, we don't respond to people that we think look down on us. And Daniel is so amazing. Like, like later on, when you read Daniel this week, there's this story <coughs> where, you know, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, God's the one who lifted you up. He lifts up, he takes down. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar just thought, well, maybe God did it. Thank you, Daniel, but it's really me. And one day he's looking over Babylon. He says, this is Babylon, the great city that I have made with my strength for my glory. And God says, done. It was kind of a mic drop in the bad way. <laughs> like, you're over. And, and, and he has a dream, and Daniel gets to interpret it because he's risen so high in the organization, administration. And, and, and he, he, the dream is this, that Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to have mental illness for a year and go crazy. Live like an animal. And Daniel gets to deliver it. Whew. Now, let me tell you how Larry Osborne would deliver it. Neb, baby, I've been praying for this for a long time. And I am so happy to inform you. You know what Daniel said? Oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. Wow. I just think wisdom, courage, and genuine respect, loving our enemies have become cliches, not realities. And then we wonder, God, why aren't we getting where we're supposed to go? And it's because we're not listening to him when he says turn right and we feel like we should turn left. This passage ends with these words. Verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar and the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered his administration, the king's service. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus when he's writing this 70 years later. As you read Daniel, three revivals. Because he listened and he did it God's way when everything in us says there's another way. Now I want to close with this. You might be thinking, wow, that'd be really great if I was in a Daniel position. <laughs> but I'm just here in my little job or I'm taking care of the kids or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. I want a little story to tell you how important you are. I learned it on a vacation. We were at a place called Carlsbad Caverns. Maybe some of you have been there. And uh, it was like, okay, just kind of a family memory. But part of this story you need to know that changes a few things is my wife, Nancy, is claustrophobic. Now, she's not crazy claustrophobic. But you can see crazy from where she is. <laughs> so there's no way she's going in. And so what she does is, is uh, it's a, if you've been there, huge, big visitor center, big old elevator, pictures of how big the cavern is. So she goes, I'll go with you. So instead of staying up, she goes down. And then she actually says, you know, I think I'll go on the tour with you guys. And I'm going, hallelujah, this is a fun family memory. I, I can't even believe it. This is great. So we're waiting in line, and uh, we're all going to go. And two guys come out, and one says to the other, that was so cool when they turned the lights out. Now that left me with a moral dilemma. Do I tell her or not? So I didn't. 
but she heard it. So she goes, they turn the lights out? And I said, honey, it's just for a couple of seconds. Well, are you sure? Trust me, hon, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so we go on the tour. At the end, if you've been there, they unplug it to show you how you can't even see your hand move in front of your face, how dark it is. And suddenly it's three, 10, 12. <laughs> a bat bit me to make it worse. It's like, ah, I could feel the bat and then a little bit of blood. And then the bat spoke. And it said, I will never trust you again. Which in my profession is a serious problem. And then I remembered. My oldest son, Nathan, had got one of those new first iteration Indiglo lights from Timex. You know those watches? You push the button. Well, I want to tell you how lame that light was. When we brought it home... He said, Dad, Dad, it's not working. So we had to go in his room, and I go, well, yeah, it's working, but it's so lame you can't tell. We need a flashlight to see it in the night at Oceanside. (laughs) But I'm desperate. I remember he has it. So I said, Nathan, push the button on your light, on your watch. (laughs) And suddenly we could see our feet. This light was there. Some guy over here goes, turn that out. I said, I'll kill you if you do. So (laughs) a little sidebar. And this is the lesson I learned. That watch that in the ocean side kind of polluted from stores and all that light couldn't tell us what time it was, could have led us out of that cave. Because the darker it gets, the brighter the tiniest of lights become. This is not a message for your brain This is not a message for other people. I want this to be a message of encouragement to you that if you will do it God's way, you will be amazed at what God can do. He loves to take this tiny little Indiglo Timex lame watch and lead people to freedom. But it will never happen if we don't push the right buttons. May God be with you. May God help you to know what has your name on the things we've seen. So thanks. God bless.